0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Hey, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Good to see you all. Happy Sunday. And yes, today is the beginning of the Advent season, and so we're looking forward to... Uh, you know, spending time just putting a, a spotlight on the birth of Jesus Christ over the next several weeks, obviously leading up to Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day. I've had multiple people um, say they've never had a, never gone through an Advent sermon series, and and you know, part of that is contingent upon how you grew up, and uh, maybe you didn't go to church at all, so the word Advent's new. Uh, you know, perhaps you didn't grow up in kind of a liturgical church. And so, you know, you did the Christmas Eve thing, you did the Christmas Day thing, but, you know, what, what's Advent, you know? Well, let's get some definitions down. I think that's important. Advent just basically means the arrival of a notable person, right? And so, when we talk about the, the the coming of Jesus Christ, that is the Advent, the this notable person that we're celebrating. And, by the way, we also talk in terms of a second Advent. I think it's important to remember that this Christmas season that this notable person, right, is going to come back. And so we call that a second Advent. So uh, I think when you look at church history, well, let me say it this way. There's a lot of reasons why we need, we should be celebrating Advent. Um, I think there's a lot of benefits to spending several weeks with a hyper focus on the birth of Jesus Christ. Here's a couple of reasons. First, church history is filled with churches and denominations, which which follow what we call a Christian calendar, right? Uh, the Christian calendar highlights some of the most important events of the Christian faith. You know, we're talking about Advent right now, but we can also mention Lent, Lent, which leads up to uh, Christmas. And it's really only in the last hundred ish years where churches in America have disconnected themselves, I think from history. And I think this is not a good thing. I find this actually quite disappointing. And I think we have much to learn from history and it's good for our church, our local church to we put on a path that allows us to look back into history because when you look back into history, it helps inform your present and your future. And let me state it like this. If I'm coming up with anything new, then it's probably, probably doesn't need to be said, right? Because of what's been already been spoken about within church history. So a, a connection with history enables us to see the importance of Advent uh, second and, uh, it is, in my opinion, that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is undervalued. Yes, for several weeks, we sing the Christmas songs, right? Uh, you might have the manger scene in your home. Uh, you know, at some point, the Powers' house. You know, we we go and we go find a tree. I cut it down and have three ladies telling me what tree to cut down, and then I drag it back to the truck and I throw in the truck and then I put the tree up. Right? Uh, we all have the traditions. We remember the wise men. Uh, the shepherds, the star. But are we thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in July? I mean, for some people, they're not thinking about it during the Christmas season or during the Advent season. But also, for those who do love celebrating the Advent season, are you really thinking about it during the 4th of July? Yes, you know, all throughout... Uh, the year we focus on justification and salvation to the cross of Jesus Christ and we we talk about that basically from January to Thanksgiving but the incarnation seems to be a side gig reserved for Christmas but here is the deal and allow this truth to sink in there is no justification and salvation without the incarnation Let me say that again because that's really important. There is no justification and salvation without the incarnation. The miracle of the virgin birth must have taken place for you, Christian, to be forgiven of your sins. We should be talking about the birth of Jesus Christ all year round. Listen, I'm not I am not going to hate on you. If you listen to Christ, Christmas music, you know, you know, every month of the year, you know, if you're that type of person, like someone heckles you, all you got to do is tell them, hey, listen, I'm listening to incarnation music. Get off my back, right? It's okay. And hopefully, I, I think the incarnation of Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why it's important to celebrate it all year round and yes, have a hyper focus during the Advent season is that it actually puts us in awe and wonder of who God is. And what he has done. It puts us in awe and wonder of God's purpose and plan. I also want to add that, and I think, you know, if you know me, I'm a big church history guy. You know, I love the early church fathers, and they understood the profundity of the incarnation more than most people in our generation on a spiritual level. Uh, there was very little space in the first century for a God or gods to take on flesh, to become human, right? This was the cultural milieu of, of the early church. As a matter of fact, the claims of Christianity, Christianity were an anathema to the religious like psyche of first century Greco Roman culture. The spirit was good, right? So spirits, good. Gods are good. And the flesh was bad. But now with Christianity, the Spirit, or God, taking on flesh is not supposed to happen. It's like, that that just does not happen. With the birth of Jesus Christ, what was distinct became one. And that was absolutely revolutionary. Now on to the sermon series. This sermon series is called Born to Reign. One of the reasons why the Son of God took on flesh is to be our conquering king. However, you know, Jesus um, taking on flesh and establishing his reign and his kingdom is unlike any earthly king. So a goal of this Advent sermon series is to show you the differences between this king and you know, in other kings of history, one thinks of King Henry the of England, or King Nebuchadnezzar. And you go to the Book of Daniel, or or former President Trump, or current President Biden. This particular king is unlike any other ruler or king that has ever existed, and he was born to reign. He was born to reign over the universe, and over human hearts. Now, I should invite you to pray with me for God's help to preach His Word faithfully and then we'll get into the details of today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to um, walk through this Advent season and focus on Jesus, Jesus who came in the flesh and who was born to reign and currently does reign at the right hand of the Father. So, Lord, give me the faithfulness to preach your word well. Uh, Make all of our hearts receptive to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. For a moment, I want to look at the kings and queens of 16th century England and use some of these kings and queens as a contrast to King Jesus. Now, we can go to a lot of different countries that had kings and queens, but let's just hone in on England. Uh, There's some familiarity here when we look at 16th century England. In April of 1509, Henry VIII became king of England. Now, if you know anything about reformation church history some of the reforms of king henry began to move the religious needle away from catholicism now while henry was not a committed reformer he did make decisions uh, popular with the reformers but he did it out of self-preservation so he wasn't really just trying to change things cuz he had you know these great religious convictions no that's not what was going on he he had wives, and he had divorces, and he had some people killed, and he he wanted to survive as a king, but he had to move the needle religiously in order to make these things happen. But it was at the benefit of Protestants. Well, Henry died on uh, January twenty eighth, fifteen forty seven. When he when he died, his son took up the throne, and that was Edward the Edward was young, but a committed Protestant, and Protestants saw this. Henry VIII didn't give him enough but then now they had Edward and now the the Protestants were really hoping that Catholicism would be displaced in England but Edward died 6 years you know into his kingship so he really didn't have a lot of time to make sweeping changes throughout England but all was not lost for those who wanted to see uh, the gospel spread like wildfire across England Another Protestant, Lady Jane Grey, became queen. Her rule lasted nine days. That's right, nine days. Not long after that, uh, Lady Jane Grey was executed by Queen Mary I. And Queen Mary, you need to know, was a committed Catholic, which meant practicing Catholics were ecstatic about Mary. She would restore England to Catholicism. Mary was the actual you know, biological daughter of King Henry VIII and did not appreciate the changes her father made, so she brought back uh, the changes to, to be palpable with Catholicism. And here's another thing that's really important to know about Mary. Mary was ruthless against Protestants. Her moniker, Bloody Mary, was well-deserved, and she shed the blood of Protestants throughout England. All these... Kings and queens fall into the Tudor genealogy, uh, the Tudor dynasty, if you will. And um, this particular dynasty uh, would, would eventually end. And In 1603, the House of Stuart came to the ascent. So for years, Protestants and Catholics placed their hopes in a king and queen that made great promises who eventually died. Often when a king or queen died hopes were dashed promises remained unfulfilled dynasties rose to prominence and finally came to a crash So what's my point why am I telling you why am I giving you some history here about kings and queens of England in the 16th century What can we learn from these kings and queens from the 16th century England You know you can you can you can read a biography of all these monarchs and it reveals their flaws all these monarchs died. All these monarchs had crowds of people who supported the rule. Every person, however, were eventually disappointed. And it's not difficult to make the same observations of, say, you know, American presidents and their followers. Every election comes a victor and a loser, along with dreams dashed either by loss or disappointment. Yes, we, we do argue about you know which leader is better than the others, but don't be mistaken, there's always disappointment. There are always promises that are not fulfilled. But what if I told you we could follow a king who does not disappoint? What if I told you that? What if I said you could follow a king that does fulfill all the campaign promises, right? All of them. Every single one of them. What if I told you that there is a king whose dynasty is eternal, but his dynasty is also revealed in the temporal. What if I told you there was only one king, only one, who is truly born to reign? Only one. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we read about the genealogies of Jesus Christ. It's there version of what, like Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.org, and ancestor.com, right? These, these particular websites that help you see your family tree. Well, Jesus is connected to a family tree. In the Gospel of Luke, the genealogy begins with the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, and goes all the way back to the first person ever created, Adam, right? So it starts with Joseph, and the genealogy works its way back to Adam. Well, in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus begins with Abraham and works forward and ends with Mary, the biological mother of Jesus. In both genealogies, you know, we see names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the inclusion of these particular figures are important into the genealogy because God made specific promises to them about the future of God's people, promises that Israel uh, was looking to see fulfilled. You know, then we also have the great King David. He's mentioned in both genealogies. His significance cannot be understated because, you know, it'd be through the line of King David that the greatest king would ever come. So genealogies matter, right? Yeah, I know. I understand that, like, some of the names are hard to pronounce. It's like, how do I even get through this particular genealogy? You, you get to genealogies in the Bible, and it's like, you know, can we just skip the page, get on to the narrative, or get to the parable, or whatever? but you need to know every every name matters cuz every name in the genealogy points to the birth of a king we, you know we say that the birth of a child is special and i and i totally get the sentiment right i say my kids are special right i'll never forget the birth of my children um except for the part when i passed out and you know that's a whole long story so but i digress but let's think for a moment Let, let's think well about this Is the birth of a child as special as we make it out to be? I mean, think about it. Billions upon billions of people have been born. And can we be honest here? The process has remained relatively unchanged, right? And I'm not trying to be crude by any means, but but I want you to see the difference between how all people of all time have been born and conceived and born compared to the birth of Jesus. Do you want to know What birth is special, right? The birth of Jesus is special. That's truly special. Like we read this in Matthew one eighteen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, Verse 18 is the lead-in to why the birth of Jesus is special. So think of it this way. If the kingship of Jesus is unlike any other uh, rule or ruler, then the birth of Jesus will be unlike any other. In verse 18, we, we read of, I mean... This this verse now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way seems pretty mundane, but actually gives us a lot of great theology. We have his name, which is really important. It tells us about who he is. The name Christ was not ascribed to Jesus at birth, but Christ indicates what people eventually saw in Jesus. Christ means anointed one. And because all the names have meaning, the name Jesus means to save. So already in Matthew 1, The author is indicating that the birth of this child is an anointed one who will save. Now, save who and save from what? We'll get to that in a moment. But as we see in this passage, names have significance. Names are indicators of the nature of a person. In Luke 3, the nature of Jesus is further clarified when we read Jesus is the son of Joseph. So, without even moving past these supposedly mundane genealogies, we see the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it didn't take long for us to see it. Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of an earthly man, is also the anointed one who will save. So, Again, we have an indication of who is being born. Now, let's look at the particulars of the birth of Jesus. You know, if you're the note taker out there, uh, here's a couple headings that'll help you navigate Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Uh, First, we're going to talk about the people. We're going to talk about the plan. And then we're going to talk about the purpose. The people, the plan, and the purpose. And I'm not great at alliteration, but I nailed it on this one. All right, now, to be fair, I'm cheating a little bit. When I say that our first heading is the people, I'm cheating because I'm going to include the angel. Now, angels are not people. Uh, They are different. They are not image bearers of God. Uh, But the angel is a real character in our story. As a matter of fact, the only words spoken aloud in our passage are from the angel speaking to Joseph about Mary and Jesus. That's Good to keep in mind, right? We got two active characters who are talking about, which is called like passive characters, talking about, um, about Mary and Jesus. Now, Joseph is a curious character in the Bible. Like, we just don't know much about him. As a matter of fact, I was before church, I was kind of flipping through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and it just kind of occurred to me that, you know, after Luke 2, um, Kind of just thinking through when did Joseph kind of fall off the map in in scripture it's at age twelve, and in this passage where you know jesus is twelve he was he was teaching in the in the, already at that age um teaching in the synagogue, even in this passage, you know the names Joseph and Mary don't show up just as parents, so we don't know much about him, but here's what we can probably surmise I think Joseph was probably presumably a simple man, yeah, he is he probably much older than Mary. Um, but a hard worker, uh, Jer- uh, Joseph learned to work with his hands, which allowed him to become a, a skilled carpenter. Obviously, this would be a skill that Jesus would take on uh, late in his life. And we read in verse 18 that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Now, we got to understand like betrothal and marriage in the first century and in in Jewish you know, first century culture is much different than what we got going on here in America in so many different ways. A uh, betrothal for Mary and jo- Joseph is like the next formal step towards marriage. It's like it's kind of official, but not totally official. We're like 95 to f- 95% official, but not 100% official. So probably what happened is when Mary and Joseph are young, their parents arranged for them to be married, which, you know, if you think about it in some cultures throughout the world, this continues to be the case. And as years went by, it became clear their parents' arrangement was a good idea. So their betrothal was not unexpected. And in a small town like Nazareth, right? Not huge, not a not a bustling metropolitist. Uh, uh, everyone knew about their budding relationship. And if there's one word I would use to describe Joseph and his future life with, Mar- with Mary, it would probably be something like simple, right? Just a simple life. It's likely that Joseph, along with Mary, faithfully attended uh, the synagogue. He likely had every intention of raising a family in a Jewish home. After all, Located in Joseph's tree, family tree, as I mentioned, is the great King David, right? You know, recently I was talking with someone, and they're like, you know, do you know Abraham Lincoln's in my family tree? And I'm like, really? That's really cool. It's kind of the same feel here with with Joseph. It's like, he's got King David. That's pretty cool. Um, And so even though being from Nazareth, is nothing to kind of write home about, he is a descendant of the greatest king of Israel. And that was highly respected. So we got Joseph. Now, what about the angel? Well, the angel is nameless in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke, the angel that visited uh, Mary is named Gabriel, but cricket, cricket's here in Matthew, no name. Nonetheless, the content of the conversation between Joseph and the angel is what matters. And I'll get to that in a moment, but here, here's what is notable for a moment. God chose to use the angel to deliver a message to a relative nobody. Like, truly. And just think about this for a moment. Would you know anything about Joseph, if not for God choosing to use him in his sovereign plan, right, in a very particular way, to be the kind of earthly father of Jesus? Would you know anything about Joseph? Of course you would not. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems crazy to think that the king of the universe, King Jesus, would come from people who were relative no-namers, I mean, the same thing goes with Mary. What made Mary special? Well, God chose her. In his sovereign plan, God chose her. But then again, we should not be surprised, right? We should not be surprised by how God acts, and particularly in this way. What was David before he was king? Like, David was just a shepherd. Like, he was the bottom of the social, social and family ladder. Like he was the smallest, the the youngest, the skinniest, and he did all the grunt work. He was the shepherd in the field, right? Uh, but God used him to be a, a mighty king. And there are other relative no-namers until that we have in scripture. Abraham would have been a no one unless God gave him a vision for his people. Like who else do we see in the family tree? We've got Rahab, a prostitute, and then a bunch of dudes who failed up to live their to lived up to live up to their potential. That's what we have. All right. While it's interesting to talk about the genealogies and like who's in there and how God's using people, an objective look at the genealogy of Joseph. And let's be honest here, it's it's very mixed. So why did God choose Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus? There's lots of reasons we can we can um, kind of conclude, but perhaps. God wants to make the point that the future king would be unlike any other king, and this and this particular king will invite all kinds of people into the kingdom. Like you don't need to be a relative of of King Henry the Eighth in order to get into like his inner circle, right? No, not with Jesus. Jesus is different. He is taking the nobodies and making them somebody because of who Jesus is. So this king from the line of Joseph would not pursue, right, the worldly treasures and desires. No, he would be a king to free people from earthly treasures and desires. Now, the people involved in the plan of God, including Joseph, are meant to give us hope by pointing to the one, the only one who could execute the plan of God. Now, what did the execution of the plan of God like look like? Let's read that in verses 18 and 19. We read this in Holy Scripture. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, uh, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So, yeah, we we got a problem here. Can we just step back and acknowledge that? We got a problem. Mary is pregnant, and Joseph is not the father. Um... Man, you know, if when we remove the veneer of what Christmas has become, we see that the initial response from Joseph, it's not really that inappropriate, right? I I'm not sure my response to the news would have been much like different. It would take a lot of convincing to show that the relationship is like still worth it. And for Joseph, at least for the for a moment, it wasn't worth it. And Joseph was going to end the betrothal and so after years of planning to be married to Mary Joseph was about to walk away now there's I think there's several takeaways from this particular scene first we do receive insight into the character of Joseph because he was a good Jewish man Mary would have been like unclean that'd be kind of the language you would use old you know that the Jews would use in looking back and reading the law and if she's unclean, It automatically makes marriage just very suspect. But Joseph doesn't throw Mary under the bus. Joseph would end the relationship quietly, or as the the Greek clarifies, Joseph would divorce her in secret. I think that gets more to the point here. It's like, how can he do this in such a way to actually, that's that's caring for Mary? At least that's how we've seen it, right? Friends and family surely would eventually figure it out, but Joseph didn't want to make waves. Yeah, and really, you know, some people would not be so kind. And second, I don't blame Joseph for his hesitation. If Sharice had to come to me and said, hey, I'm pregnant <laughs> and you're not the father, I'd be like, what, 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 honey? And it was the Holy Spirit. If she said all that, I'm like, I got, I got like 15 seconds to pick up the phone and call a counselor, <laughs> right? That's what I'm doing. Like, it's going to take a little more convincing to prove me that, like, the standard biological factors were suspended to become pregnant. Really, right? Like, all of a sudden, what is clear and obvious um, in order to make a human being didn't happen. I mean, I got a lot of questions. So, I don't think Joseph is going crazy he's not acting irrationally. He he wants to move forward and divorce. And God, knowing the heart of Joseph, sends in the help. Here is what the help tells Joseph. This is verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, again, Joseph, should he divorce Mary? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. All right. So, Mary tells Joseph the news, and Joseph is like, "Um, I'm going to sleep on it. <laughs> and rightfully so. And then we read that in a dream, an angel speaks to Joseph. The angel comforts Joseph and then instructs Joseph. He uh, The angel comforts and then instructs. First, the angel tells Joseph not to fear. And rightfully so, without a doubt. Joseph would have been fearful. He would have been anxious, right? He would have been feeling a ton of fear and anxiety. Not only did he have like thoughts of betrayal that Mary betrayed him, but what would Mary's potential betrayal say about him within his community? Again, Nazareth, small town, backwoods town. Everyone knew everything. Everyone was up in everyone's business. And then then something like this happens. Yeah, I think there'd be a little bit of fear and anxiety running through his heart. But the word from the angel, do not fear, came to Joseph as if it was coming directly from God. Second, the angel affirms what Mary already told him. And with this, we get some instruction. Mary was was to have a miraculous conception that would lead to an unremarkable delivery. Mary, let me say that again, Mary was going to have a miraculous conception that would lead to an unremarkable delivery. And, and the angel tells Joseph that when Mary gives birth, he instructs Joseph that when Mary gives birth, it will be a boy and you're going to name the boy Jesus. Okay, interesting scene here. And so I got to hold up again and, and evaluate what's going on here well before the invention of the ultrasound the gender of the child was already known if i am joseph and i'm thinking to myself okay if the child is a girl the ruse will be revealed like there's a 50-50 shot here if it's a girl and the angel's wrong then he really knows something's gonna miss and now ladies, I know y'all say you can tell the gender of the child when, when the child's in your stomach or whatever, like we thought we were going to have a boy at the power's house and lo and behold, no boys, all girls. So just saying, but if you put yourself in the shoes of Joseph for a moment, how would you have responded to Mary? And then the angel, like, how would you respond to I'm not, I'm not sure how I would have responded. I would like to think I would have responded like Joseph, but I don't know. So what does the, the response of Joseph reveal? At the very least, Joseph knew something unusual was going on, right? The presence of an angel would have made that clear. But also, we see that Joseph is trying to walk in faith, right? God knew that fear needed to be replaced with faith, and the visit from the angel allowed Joseph to kind of like flip this switch of faith on in his particular life. So the inclusion of the angel is really important in the story of Joseph. And Mary, I need to address now the uh, like the real elephant in the room, and, and here here it is: uh, How is it possible for the Holy Spirit to impregnate Mary? Again, I am not trying to be crude, but I want us to really understand the reasons why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, to grasp what is going on, we need to get our minds around uh, the idea of miracles. Uh, John Gresham Machen said this about miracles. John Machen, great, great thinker, theologian from the early 20th century. He said this, the conception of the, quote, supernatural is closely connected with that of a miracle. A miracle is the supernatural manifesting itself in an external world. The supernatural is breaking into uh, our temporal world, if you will. So a simple definition of a miracle is that it's an event that defies the natural and scientific laws. For example, we know that two plus two equals four. Like, how do we know that? Because there are specific scientific laws, in this case, mathematical laws, that allow us to make these calculations. Like, so that makes sense, right? Here's another scientific law: we know that when the temperature drops below thirty-two degrees Fahrenheit, lakes begin to freeze. (laughs) water begins to freeze right and we call this exothermic laws right so the birth of jesus defies these kind of laws and more specifically like biological laws laws and and here's what i got to say to you all you christian need to be comfortable with miracles you got to be comfortable with the supernatural kind of breaking in and and breaking into this external or or temporal world. And, uh, you know, it's it's become comfortable to, act, to accept uh, the Jesus of the New Testament, but to reject the miracles of the New Testament. That's really popular in some circles. You know, we hear like, Jesus is a great teacher, who taught good things, but there's no way he was born of a virgin, and there's absolutely no chance he rose from the dead. And here's what you need to hear. The moment you move away from the miracles of the New Testament is the moment you have moved away from the gospel to Jesus Christ. The moment you move away from the miracles, you move away from the gospel. Here's a popular example of someone who's moved away from miracles. Um, Founding father Thomas Jefferson is famous or infamous for his Jefferson Bible his Jefferson Bible is where he took the New Testament, cut out all the miracles, because he couldn't handle the supernatural. He was purely a rationalistic thinker. And that, in a sense, he was trying to make a point that this is the Bible, right? This is, what, this is the only things that actually make sense because they don't portray uh, laws, right? And so this attempt to, to remove the miraculous from the Bible is, I think, a relentless, relentless pursuit of uh, by man to make man just like God. That's what's going on here. How do we level the playing field in a a sense? And here's the deal. Without faith in God, the birth of Jesus will not make sense. It will not make sense. Without faith, you will never be able to accept the miracles for what they are. However, with faith, Mary plus the Holy Spirit equals Jesus, right? right? And when you understand the plan of Jesus becoming man, the miracles, man, the miracles make even more sense. The purpose of the virgin birth makes sense. And so here, here is the purpose, right? Through the virgin birth, God is making a way. God is making a way for humanity to be reconciled. Excuse me, to be rescued from sin and reconciled to God. That is the purpose of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. For humanity to be rescued from sin and reconciled to God. And we, we, we begin to see this in the, at the end of verse 21. And it says this in, in Holy Scripture. And you should call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save. Save his people from their sin. Jesus was born to rule and reign over your heart and life. But to do that, the king had to deal with your sin. The birth of Jesus happened so that people could be saved. In this verse, Matthew is actually, without even us really being able to see it, but he's going back to the garden, Genesis 1-3, to and showing that after years of waiting, God is fulfilling a promise. Here's a primer of Genesis 1-3, to which helps us understand what we read in Matthew 1, verse 21. Here's the primer of Genesis 1-3. to God made everything good. Let's start there, right? That's point number one. Point number two, Adam and Eve messed it all up. They jacked it up, right? They messed it up. Point number three, they sinned against a holy and just God, and their sin needed to be punished. Point four, the sin of Adam and Eve affected all of humanity, and God can have nothing to do with sin. So uh, when they sinned, sin entered the world, and everything was all messed up. Point five, Really important. God does not give up on his people. God does not give up. Even though sin entered the world and messed it all up, God does not give up on his people. And final point six, primary of Genesis 1 to 3, God had a plan that had a purpose. Going back specifically to Genesis 3, we read about when God first promised a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him. Here's what God said when He like doled out the consequences for the deception of the serpent. Of the serpent, remember that scene. Um, Adam and Eve are having a good time; everything's great. God made everything good, including them. And the serpent comes along and's like, "I'm gonna tell you a couple lies." Adam and Eve believe the lies, and all of a sudden, there are consequences. Well, here's some consequences that we read about in Genesis Genesis 3, directed toward the serpent. And I quote, "I will put enmity between you and the woman." God says to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is really crucial. While talking about the relationship between the woman and the serpent, seemingly unexpectedly, the male pronoun "he is used. Now, God is not gender confused. God is pointing to the day when the offspring of Mary, the woman, would have his heel bruised by crucifixion. However, through the crucifixion, the head of the serpent would be crushed. My wife, uh, every Advent, she posts the same photo on her Facebook And it's a beautiful photo. If you like like art, you'll appreciate it. If you don't like art, you probably don't care. So for those of you who like art, here's the photo. It's a picture of Mary. And um, Mary's pregnant, you know, obviously with Jesus. And underneath her foot is the head of the serpent. It's a pretty awesome picture. It's an awesome picture that connects what we read in Genesis 3, verse 15, with with Matthew 1, verse 21 why jesus was born this is why jesus was born to crush the head of satan through the crucifixion of jesus christ it's amazing this is the purpose of the birth of jesus christ he came to save his people for himself and to the glory of god jesus didn't come to reverse the curse he he came he came listen he came to put away the curse a redemption church is a, a confessional church we're part of a confessional denomination, and I think our confession of faith sums up well the plan and purpose of God and the birth of Jesus Christ. Here, Here's a more extended quote than what I usually will um, give you guys, but I, I hope you can appreciate the depth of what we believe and why we celebrate Christmas. Here's what chapter 9, section 2 of our confession of faith, and this is what it says. And I quote, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, is the true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made. If you're familiar with ancient creeds, you hear a lot of creedal language here. When the fullness of time had come, He took upon Himself man's nature, and with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, when the Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. So he was born of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. There's the genealogy, right? That's the genealogy we read in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And here's a little bit more. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without a conversion, a composition, or confusion. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Man, that's our confession of faith, people. It's good stuff. It took the Son of God to take on all of man's nature except for sin, right? So that man could be redeemed from sin. There's this quote in church history, and it's been requoted quoted and, and restated in different ways, and, but it's all trying to make the same point. And it goes something like this, and it's regarding why Jesus was born. It goes like this, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. So, and Jesus had to become a man in order to redeem humanity, except for sin, of course. So, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. That's the purpose That's the plan and the purpose at play. That's why Jesus came. So everything I read, especially, you know, what I read in our our confession of faith, I think is stunning. It's stunning because we see what God has done for his people, right? But there's more. There's more than we see in our text today about why God became man. Just as we read from Genesis 1 and 2, um, we read in those particular chapters, right? At the beginning of the Bible, that God intends to dwell with his people, Right, God dwelled with Adam and Eve, right, and then we, as we continue along the Old Testament, God dwells with His people through the tabernacle, and then through uh, the temple later, and then we read in the Gospels that the Son of God dwells with His people by taking on flesh. And as you and as you sit and I stand this morning, God continues to dwell uh, by God the Holy Spirit. I mean, I cannot stress enough the heart of God. For his people, God has taken massive steps for you to be reconciled and and to dwell with the Lord. The purpose of God has not changed. It hasn't changed. It's been consistent from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. Like, There's even more to God dwelling with his people when we think about the second advent of Jesus Christ. and What's that going to look like in heaven? It's more dwelling language. There's more dwelling realities. It's truly stunning. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, the angel says to Joseph in Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name. What? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? (laughs) Well, Luke's going to be very, excuse me, Matthew's going to be really clear. Emmanuel means God with us. The miracle of the birth of Jesus tells us that God desires to be with his people, even Uh, One of the names given to Jesus tells us God's desire to dwell with his people. Ryan rightly led out in worship and song with, O come, O come, Emmanuel. When we were singing, we were singing about God who very literally uh, took on flesh amongst us to be with us and to deal with some things like sin, right? So the miraculous birth of Jesus reveals God's intention to dwell. Uh, The miraculous birth of, of Jesus is God tangibly showing us how he communes or dwells with his people. The name of Jesus and the role of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1, verses 18 25 indicate God's intention to be with us. And communing with us through a miracle shows us that no other person, no other idea, no other religion can do what God has done, period. So when you have a friend who says to you, Hey, I just can't understand the birth of Jesus. <laughs> I can't get my mind around it. You actually can respond and say, yeah, that's kind of the point. (laughs) That's the point. The miracle of the birth of Jesus tells us that God had a plan to restore a relationship with his people. And it took a miracle for people to believe in the plan. Wow. So if by faith you believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which leads to your justification and present sanctification then you can rest and rejoice in the plan and purpose of God. You can rejoice that King Jesus rules over this world and he rules over your heart. In the weeks ahead, we will look at several responses to this baby born to be a king. We will look at how and why there was such a strong reaction, uh, positive and negatively a strong reaction in response to the birth of Christ. But until next week, here is my encouragement to you. One, marvel in the miracle. Marvel in the miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ. And number two, marvel in what the miracle means for you. Let's pray.